I'm Stephen Gregory Smith. And I'm Matt Connor. Places, everyone, it's time for The Connor and Smith Show. Thank you, Places. Okay, so here, we're doing this kind of quick tonight because we are in a hurry. We've had a million things happen, and I've got purple in my hair. It's Easter. What do you think about that? Yeah. Um, so we're going to be planting some flowers tonight, just four. We're seeding four uh, sunflowers. Oh, that's Alan Savada. So Hi, Alan. We're planting flowers tonight before we talk to Jason Daniel in a few minutes on our podcast. Um, so... These sunflowers are not going to stay in here forever. They're just going to stay here for now until they grow and we'll put them in a bigger place. But So let's just do four. Uh, I'm going to put you right here. Did you read the directions? Yes. Barbara Bear is going to say, always read the directions. I read the directions earlier, yes. We are outside if you hear nature. This is, uh, this is um, regional dirt from Virginia. That we uh, we are we're using the Virginia dirt tonight. Um, I need some sunflowers. Hi, Janice. Can't see everybody because my eyes are going bad. Okay. One, two. One, two. Three, four. Three, four. Okay. We are planting sunflowers tonight. Before we go, uh, we're not going to stay on Facebook tonight when we talk to Jason. At seven, uh, that podcast will probably be up around nine tonight. Um, or eight. Yep. Getting quicker. There. Planted. Craft done. I see sunflowers are my favorite flowers. Uh-huh. That's David. Hi, David. Where in the world is David Lamont Wilson today? Oh, there's Eddie. It's Eddie. He's, he's, he says hi. All right, well... We are going to wrap up. We're going to wrap this up, and we're going to call Jason Danielly in just a few minutes, and we're going to chat with him about life. All right. We'll be right back. Hello, Jason. Can you, Can you hear, hear me? me? Yes. How are you? Good. How are you? It's Stephen here. Hey, Stephen. How are you doing? Good. Here, Matthew is here as well. Yeah. Hey, Jason. It's Matt. Hey, Matt. How are you? Oh, gosh. Who are we kidding? We've been sitting in the living room for a year. <laughs> I'm telling you. I know. I know. Oh, my God. If if you hear uh, dog noises, the pugs are snorting and snarfling like in very close proximity to the microphone. <laughs> Good. Some if you things... hear dog noises on this end, King is chewing his bully stick. So we're we're even. Good. Good. Well, this is a dog safe space. What kind of, <laughs> what kind of, what kind of dog do you have? He's a schnorky, a schnauzer and a yorkie mix. Although a friend of mine likes to invert it and call him a, a yowzer. A <laughs> <laughs> yowzer. That's funny. And he's a recent addition to your household, right? Yeah, I adopted him on February 4th. Oh, right in time. Uh, this year, yeah. Oh, okay, so during the pandemic. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. I um, I mean, not to dive, you know, into the deep end, but um, six months after my wife passed away in 2018, uh, my dog followed soon after, uh, six months after that. So um, I was trying to wait for the, uh, you know, moment that was right. And, you know, it took me until, you know, February 4th, but he is just a sweetest damn thing. And as I should have gotten them earlier, but it wouldn't have happened that way, you know? So. Right. Yeah. Our, our two dogs, I think have been our therapist for the last year. Yeah. Oh. Dance it's... partners, you know, <laughs> right. Lovers who actually listen to you when you say something. Right. <laughs> um, so yes, we we met Jason during the highest yellow at Signature Theater in 2004. Mm. Um, it's been a minute since we've caught up. Yeah, uh, it has. To those who didn't see it, uh, which is probably most people, um, <laughs> no offense. I mean, it was just a long time ago. And it was, it a, it was short a small run. house. Yeah, a four-week yeah. run. Um, the highest yellow concerned... Uh, Vincent Van Gogh and his Gog, sorry, and his doctor. Uh, Jason played the doctor. Um, Dr. Felix Ray, right? D- 
Dr. Felix Ray and uh, Judy Kuhn played uh, the prostitute, mm-hmm. um, Ra- Rachel. That you know, right? that sounds right. Yeah. Um, his heart is yes. to da, da. Yes, his heart. Beautiful song. And Mark Kudish played Van Gogh in mm-hmm. a tub. Yes. Yeah, yes, um, in all of his glory. Which I had to stare at and point at in every night. <laughs> I was trying to, I was trying to tell Matthew about earlier this afternoon. It was like I have to bring this up. Mm. It was tech, and you know, so it's the first time there was like the full nudity. Yeah, and you, ha- <laughs> we were all on stage because we were ba- the the loonies were back in the loony. I should not say that the mentally ill were back in the dugout trenches behind the stage. That was me. And uh, our Scott Thompson Thompson. and Donna Migliaccio. Migliaccio, Who then doubled, I think the opening of act two, didn't she have like a number? Yeah, she played a madam. Yeah. I saw, I saw the show, I think three or four times. I was obsessed with the hows and the whys and the where's and the what. Yeah. Yeah. But that moment where the line was always kind of difficult for you to get through in rehearsal proper, but when with the anticipation of Mark revealing himself to you, you had a line that was, I must see your penis. Right. (laughs) And it took you about six good times to even get it out. Oh, my God. But everyone in the entire theater was like in hysterics because you couldn't have written a more simplistic (laughs) to the point line. Right. That moment. Well, it's so very medical of the doctor. You know, it's I mean, you you say what you need. I need to see your penis. I mean, what? How, how else can you say it? You know, <laughs> show me your schlong. Uh, there's right. there are a number of alliterations I'm sure we could go through, and since it's uh, you know a podcast, we probably could. But um, <laughs> yeah, I remember it distinctly. Um, not the dress rehearsal, but every night because uh, uh, Dr. Ray was giving Van Gogh a, a an ice bath because that was the prescription for madness. You know, that's how you treated it. In, in at least in the early forms of, you know, of treatment in those days. And so Mark just sang, I think he just sang, or he was just getting ready to get into the ice bath. And there, you know, you're, you're thinking about shrinkage, you're thinking about all the things you could possibly ad libs, you know, if you were to go up, if it were, you know, the midnight showing at a university or say, <laughs> or for a bunch of actors, I just, you know, I must see your penis and look down and I can't remember what the next line was, but, and you know, I mean, if anyone who's listening knows Mark Kudish, you know, just this big, beefy, overly serious guy all the time. I mean, he's a sweetheart and has this great sense of humor, but he portrays, you know, he gives us the, the super serious, almost scowling look all the time. And I can't remember what it was. And it, it was a very simple line as well. Um, because I had to look to see if he had syphilis, which might have caused his madness. So I had to really analyze, <laughs> you know, I'm not method, but you know, you have to give it a good look if you're playing a doctor who's trying to treat someone. Uh, I just remember there were so many thoughts going through my mind. I can't imagine what the audience was thinking. <laughs> I can't either. Jason, was that was that your first time doing a Lacusa show? Yeah. Yeah, my only time. What? I've never worked with John Michael John. Oh no, I did a reading, uh, a workshop of a, a piece, about four or five years ago with him. Yeah, but yeah, that was the first time. Yeah, his work is always just so unique and so. Uh, some of it feels almost um, simple melodies that with very complex um, underscoring and and orchestrations and. Uh, I I was really I loved some of the music from the highest yellow. Yeah, you know, yeah, he's. I think this show was a, a transition for Michael John, and I won't say I know definitively, but I I think he was heading toward something that might resemble more melodic um, uh, melody lines for for the songs. Um, there was a great song that Harry had that um, who, uh, Harry Winter, who played my superior doctor and um, something about falling in love or have you ever loved? And yeah, it just, <laughs> it was, dev, you know, was, just beautiful. 
Have you ever loved? Yes. Yeah, in the title song, the highest yellow was a beautiful, gorgeous. Yeah. yeah, I do remember for years I couldn't get the opening number that I sang out of my head because it's one of those. Uh, it makes sense. Well, my companions, I'm da, 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 that one. It was more, you know, there's a hole in the world like a great back pit, you know, like for Sweeney it was very wordy and. Um, oh, yeah, out there. The, angular. The, the, the yeah. song that you sang. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I, I couldn't forget it because you really had to you know make the roadmap in order to to get through it but it was so very clear once you learned it and for years it was but you know it all it connected beautifully dramatically yeah uh but your song that i think uh happened in the second act you um for the first time in my life i am yearning that thing do you remember that oh my god you've got a memory yeah I, oh god I got to sing that song and we did a cabaret like farewell to the garage when we moved to the new building. Uh -huh. And that was the song chosen to be sung from highest yellow. So I got to sing it oh. and realize, you know, just how horrifically difficult it is, um, <laughs> but beautiful. Um, that's yeah. the thing is he did find some really simple, I mean, his heart, I still remember that song. His heart is so it sounds like it could be a Disney ballad, you know, it's, it's mm. so simply gorgeous yet. The ideas in it um, are just incredible. Anyway, it was, it was an interesting, really fun piece to be in. Um, and I, I know a lot of people enjoyed it. I think uh, I was so thinking that something else would eventually happen with the show. And it, it never did. It did. I was happy that when Michael, uh, published his vocal selections that I think a song or two ended up in there. Um, mm. At least the title song did. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's, there's something that's so exciting when you are originating anything. And I think, I think Jason, you've kind of originated several things, haven't you? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it, it, versus stepping into, you know, someone else's uh, costume, if you will, but, um, you were what the original f in, in Floyd Collins Homer, or... right? Huh? Yep. Um, that was 1996. Right. Okay, so I was. I can remember where I was when I heard the album for the first time. <laughs> I was at our theater fraternity house, and one of uh, the the guys that lived there said, "Hey, Stephen." You gotta hear this, like like it was like a drug deal or something. Like right. get in this room, get in my car, and we right. sat in his room, and he started the the cast recording, and we just kind of looked at each other like we had never heard anything like this. Yeah, and how when he started when Floyd started duetting with himself in that loop, we were just staring at each other with like <laughs> our jaws open. Um, by the time we got to the riddle song, it was like. We, we hadn't spoken, moved. We were just like transfixed by it. Um, so that that definitely was, I think the first time I heard you sing and was like, who is that guy? What a crazy freaking voice. That was not your first thing though. This is what I'm obsessed with about you. So you went to two different colleges, right? Yeah. Uh, Indiana? Three, three actually, but yeah. <laughs> Southern Illinois University and University of Missouri. Yeah, I went to the University of Missouri in Kansas City, UMKC, and studied vocal performance. So I was going to be not an opera singer, but I had I started singing with the St. Louis Symphony when I was 15 years old, the youngest uh, member of the chorus ever. Um, but uh, how, I, how do you land a gig like that? Uh, you know, it, I, I went to um, uh, all state choir. You know, you you audition and uh, right. so many people chosen out of the state of Missouri to go to uh, a week uh, uh, kind of a seminar and you put on a concert. Anyway, one of the kids there had auditioned and he was like a year or two older than me and said, you can audition for the, I was like, I had no idea you could audition for the St. Louis Symphony Chorus. And uh, so I auditioned and Thomas Peck, the music director, um, gave me the, you know, the gig. I was just in the, the tenor section, but I had a very high voice so i would often switch over to alto parts and right. and so robert shaw this famed choral uh director uh conducted 
uh, music directed and conducted The Messiah. And so I thought, I, this is what I want to do. I want to be on a stage with a full orchestra, a full chorus, and I want to be the person down front singing, you know, the solos. And so I wanted to do some sort of symphonic concert work, not necessarily opera, uh, but also started working when I was 15 at Six Flags doing a barbershop quartet and walked around the park. And then I did Miss Kitty's for a couple of years. So I, I could dance and I could, could act. And so I went to UMKC for a, a quarter, or no, a semester. And then I got a gig at Opryland and went down there. And then I went to Southern Illinois University in Edwardsville, which is right across the river from St. Louis, my hometown. And I did uh, a trimester there in, uh, in music theater. But between the two, before I went down to Opryland, I um, uh, I transferred to Webster University, which is in St. Louis, and I couldn't start the conservatory uh, program because I was coming in in the middle of the year. So I had to uh, just do some classes and I was there for two weeks and I was like, I can't. I mean, I was commuting down to Nashville to to rehearse for Opryland. So I, I, I was only there for two weeks, but yeah, so I've gone wow. to three different places. Yeah. And I didn't finish anywhere. I, you know, well, just kept moving and kept working and ended up in New York when I was 20. I never finished either. Um, so that's something you and I have, have in common. I was working already and all this college stuff was getting in the way of my big career. Right. <laughs> so, so who needs a degree? I'm already doing it, right? Exactly. You know? you know, when you're working and why pay off student loan debt for something you don't need a degree for? Well, I wish someone would have told that to me a few years earlier. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but so you you leave college after, you know, the two weeks at the third university. Mm -hmm. um, and so at this point, you kick around for a little bit before your big Broadway debut. What happens between your Broadway debut, you leaving college and your uh, Broadway debut? So I left um, SIUE to, I was working while I was going to school as well. I was doing um, cabaret, essentially, in St. Louis. Uh, and anyway, so I, I got a job doing a chorus line at a dinner theater in Champaign-Urbana. And that led to playing Seymour in Little Shop. And the woman, who, the young lady who played Cassie in a chorus line stuck around, unfortunately, because she was, um, her fiance cut off their engagement. She was supposed to get married and he, he called it off and she's like, I need a job. And I said, why don't you stage manage Little Shop? And we hung out and she's like, I don't know what I'm going to do. And I said, I don't know what I'm going to do. She's like, I've got a friend who lives in Queens. Let's see if they need a roommate. And she called up and we packed up my Ford Festiva and drove after Little Shop closed to New York. And that's just where I started. That's when I started. And and I auditioned, I did a um, Theater Works USA, which is a children's theater touring company. I played the Velvet Team. How everybody gets their car, oh, right? It's the best way to do it. I mean, you work your ass off because you're schlepping around the set and cleaning costumes and driving the van. But um, it's kind of great because you're getting your equity card and then your shows are at 10 a.m so you're you're finished by noon <laughs> the rest of your day is and if you're in new orleans you're you're going to get a hurricane and walk around the, <laughs> the french quarter um right and then from that i had a, a friend in that show who said i'm going back to germany to do hair there's a european tour of hair well you should audition and i auditioned for that and then i went to uh, Europe for 10 months and did hair and and then you know one thing to led to another I did a summer stock in the Catskills and and um, I think that kind of led to my first off-Broadway musical which is called Hit the Lights um, a rap musical if you could there was a rapping in it but there it wasn't really it was definitely a thousand miles away from Hamilton, <laughs> but it was, right. um, you know, it was at the Vineyard Theater. So a very prestigious theater and uh, Ted Sperling, uh, music director, um, was he, as he often did, would go see anything and everything. And he came down there and they were casting for Floyd Collins, the world premiere in Philadelphia American Music Theater Festival in, in 1994. And he said, why don't you come in? We're looking for someone like you. And I auditioned and got Homer and 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 did that. So that's, 
that's sort of the the short trip to to getting in with Ted and Tina Landau, who wrote Floyd Collins and directed it, and, and Adam Gettle, who uh, was a composer and lyricist. And then I went on the road with Phantom of the Opera for a year and change. And then when I came back to New York um, after that tour, we did Floyd off Broadway. And then that, that's how I met Hal Prince and got my deb for Broadway debut through that. And that was in Candide? Yeah. Nin wow. 1997 revival with um, Hal directing and uh, Pat Birch, his longtime uh, choreographer, collaborator. Uh, Jim Dale, Andrea Martin, Harolyn Blackwell, Brent Barrett. Yeah, it was a great way to start. And what a great score, you know, to use my, my classical vocal chops. Um, you know, what better way to do it? <laughs> a full, I don't know, 40, 45 piece orchestra. Um, wow. Yeah. Just, it seems so like unheard of now. You know what I mean? Completely, like, completely. I just have one question about Floyd Collins. Yeah. So when you guys were putting that together, I mean, you know, when you when you get subject matter where all of a sudden you're like, oh, we're doing a show. It's about a guy stuck in a cave. Um, was there a lot of figuring things out for the writing team and the um, creative team of like how to tell this story or like what are we going to do with it here? Like did it go through a lot of changes of, of finding its groove? Um, when we did it in Philadelphia, um I can't remember exactly how much rewrite rewriting there was going on. We rehearsed in New York and then went to Philly and teched it. And the way that Tina Landau works, she uses the viewpoints. Um, uh, she mm -hmm. um, is a protege of Ann Bogart in the city company through Columbia university. And, right. um, and, and Ann is sort of one of the founders. I mean, she's sort of like the next uh, line down from, I can't remember Mary's name who really started the viewpoints, but it's a, it's a collaborative way of working and it basically creates a vocabulary for the director to shortcut with the company in saying, use the architecture or topography, meaning sort of a, a grid pattern on the floor to alternate, to alter your, where you're standing on stage essentially, as opposed to saying, move over here, move over there. So there was a very collaborative process between Tina as a director and what we were doing on stage. Now, what they were writing, I can't really speak to, but from Philadelphia to New York, a lot of things changed. They folded two characters into Homer. So Johnny Gerald, who was a very close friend of Floyd Collins, it seemed like an extra character we didn't need. So they folded his, um, I think he actually sang the Riddle song uh, in Philadelphia, uh, Stephen oh, wow. Lee Anderson. And so, they folded a lot of that character into my character, which ended up being fantastic because it just got bigger and bigger. Uh, but the challenge, of course, um, is how do you make a musical that's so sort of bleak and, and dire? Because uh, not everybody knows going in that Floyd dies, uh, but it's so, you're, the, the tension is thick as hell throughout the whole thing. But it's done with a lot of humor, um, not guffaws, but definitely character, situation, humor that that breaks the tension. And ultimately, even though Floyd dies, the overall overall feeling is uh, of peace, uh, that he is um, I, I know, out of that horrible situation and moved on to a better place, even though it's ambiguous. It's not heaven and hell. It's not one thing or the other. It's just uh, glory. It's whatever glory is. Yeah. Um just uh, there was a production here at actually at the garage at signature theater oh. w which was one of the first uh, productions i had seen at the garage um and that's after the album that was the first and honestly the only time i've ever seen it produced um uh and i know it, it happens uh here and there but it's it's such a rare kind of gem that when you see someone's doing it like you really want to see it right you know? yeah it was a garrett Elise Long. Oh, I know Garrett. Uh-huh. Was the, was the sister. Yeah. Um Rich Afanado. The ballerina from Grand Hotel was the mom, Patricia Gentry. Yeah. Huh. Will Gartshore was Homer. Uh -huh. Anyway, it's uh it was a really so they used I don't know how much you 
remember of the old garage space, yeah. but they used like the rafters, like the iron grid kind uh-huh. of like he w- he was crawling all through different places <laughs> above everybody, above everyone during the the opening. Oh it God. was quite like breathtaking because at any one point he could be like right over top of you, right? Uh, lit by just a lantern. Um, so it was quite inventive as as. I, I would imagine any staging of that show has to be very inventive. I think it has yeah. to be because it, it, if it's too literal, then so much of the text can go by. You don't, you don't catch, I think it would be difficult to catch a lot of the poetic nature of the writing. Right. So, so then Jason, I'm just, I'm just, I'm talking to my mom right now. Who's going to ask me a lot of questions about this, but like, so when, <laughs> when, when you, when you, then when you develop, okay, the show becomes a hit. Uh, then when you develop, the next level of like we're going to take this into the studio, yes. the recording Is studio, the, like uh, yeah, uh-huh. yeah. I mean, first of all, that must be feel really great to have you know many shows that you you are on the the first recording of, but I guess not every song or maybe every song. What's the process of going in and recording the show? Is there dialogue? Um, so my first cast recording was Floyd Collins, which was kind of wonderful way to start um and i actually just i've had a none such records uh, were who produced or who uh, released it tommy Crasker was the producer but um yeah you go in and um anyway i was gonna say they had a um a video cassette that they used to uh publicize it to like tower records to sell the album and i had that for years and i just digitized it and shared it with the rest of the company because we just celebrated the 25th anniversary of the show and 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 their excerpts and uh, I should put it up on YouTube somewhere so so people can see it but yeah you go in there and Adam and Tina and Tommy Kraska the producer and, and Ted uh Ted uh Sperling say okay we're going to do this number we're going to cut this section like in the call in, in Floyd's opening number there's a whole small section she has blue eyes where uh, i can't remember what floyd's singing about at that point but it's in the show but it's not on the recording because they you kind of condense things tempos tend to be a little brighter because the old days you had only so much uh vinyl that you had to squeeze these numbers onto one side and the other uh you cut dialogue down okay for the recording we're going to do this dialogue but not that dialogue um yeah, so it, it becomes a truncated, faster version of what the show uh, was. Uh, does that answer your question, sort of? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, so I'm, I'm not trying to do a, this is your life, but I think that, that your life is very fascinating. It sounds like we are. <laughs> it does sound like we are. <laughs> um, uh, after the, the, the Candide, the next thing that came to you after let's see floyd collins was uh, the full monty is that correct right after candid yeah it was a few years later and i you know did a few things here and there but yeah the next thing on broadway was full monty and you sang uh i mean most famously from that you walk with me right. correct yeah which has become in and of itself a famous and iconic song sung in so many different scenarios you know yeah. um but is the I remember the first time where I was the first time I heard that song and was like, this guy, this dude <laughs> who is in these shows that I love with this voice, um, who's taken all of my parts on Broadway. <laughs> no, I was, I was still cutting my teeth in the garage. Um, but, but yeah, no, I was just so yet again instantly. You have an instantly recognizable tenor. Um, ben Brantley really seems to like you. That's good. He's not. He doesn't like very many people, so I'll take it. Yeah, his tenor came from singing alto. No, but seriously, Ben Brantley called Daniel Lee the most exquisite tenor on Broadway. Now, Jesus, I'll take that. Wow. Right. Well, I put. I definitely put that in my bio. <laughs> well, not my bio, but you know, if we're publicizing a concert or something, you know, definitely very nice to have. That was for curtains. Yeah. Oh yeah another little show you did so we'll get we'll get there in a second um the full monty uh is now of course well not now during pandemic but it, it's famously done like everywhere yeah. um every co- kind of 
stock company or any kind of, uh, it's a crowd pleasing show. Um, how was that experience? It was fantastic. Um, uh, my late wife, Marin uh, Maisie starred in Ragtime on Broadway. And so we were, we were getting to know each other at the same time that Ragtime was being developed out of town. And she was getting to know Lynn Aaron, Steve Flaherty, who composing lyrics uh, team, and then Terrence McNally, who wrote the book. And Terrence said, it, it, it sounds like I'm name dropping, but they're just friends. It, it's, you know, <laughs> part of life. But um, right. we were at Lynn's in uh, her husband Neil's apartment for some party or something. And Terrence said, I'm, I'm adapting a, a, a musical and I have a part that I'm writing with you in mind. And he said the full Monty. And I was like, fantastic. I love that Robert Carlyle part. I can't wait to play the dad. And then he's like, it's the closeted, you know, gay trumpet player. I was like, oh, okay. And, um, and he wanted me in this. And so uh, I sang for them and, um, Yaz, David Asbeck had written this sort of um, uh, Simon and Garfunkel type song, very light tenor um, tune. And, and it, it struck me immediately as like, wow, that's a, that's a real gem. And as you said, it's, it's often sung in a, in a variety of places. Um, in the show, it's, I sing it at my mother's funeral. And, mm -hmm. you know, when you, when you do a show, you kind of, it's hard to extract the situation in the show, the song, um, you can take it out of context. So I never sang it in, in concert for years and years until about 2016. And I, I started singing it in concert because I was told that it's often sung at gay weddings. And mm -hmm. I thought, oh, it makes complete sense. And I, I told, Yazbek, you know, that I'm singing it and it's so singing gay weddings. And he said, that's the first thing Jack O'Brien told, told me when I played the song, he's like, that's going to be huge in gay weddings. And <laughs> not that that has anything to do necessarily with the experience while we were doing the show, but it's one of those incredible gems that, you know, uh, that song means so much to so many people in, in beginning their life with their, their partner or at the end of their life with their partner or their, their family, some family member. So while we were doing it and there's six guys and we're saying all kinds of dirty, rude, lewd jokes, you know, as, as you often do in 10 out of 12s when you're teching a show or, you know, you're, we did it in San Diego, we did it on Broadway and then we went to London's West End to do it. You know, you get to know these people and um, it's, it was more of a body boys club kind of a thing uh, although it's undeniable that the heart of the show is what people really respond to um you respond to these guys going facing you know financial ruin and uncertainty and what are they going to do they're going to take off their clothes and they're out of shape guys who probably shouldn't be taking off their clothes in public and yet they do it because they have to and they find out so much about themselves and what they're capable of doing. And they, they take great pride in who they are, no matter what they look like. And that was the underpinning for us uh, as actors. And then the audience is at the end of the show, it's, it's Yazbek's fun score that lifts you to that point, but it's Terrence's heartfelt score uh, story and libretto that, has the audience just chomping at the bit, not for them to take off their clothes, but just to succeed. And I think mm -hmm. that's the success of the show, ultimately. It also deals a lot with body positivity, mm -hmm. um, which I find very important. Uh, and so it's a celebration of, you know, so many different things. It's, it's, it's a fun, fun show, but I mean, must have been also quite a blast to do. It's almost like you're you were uh, starring in a party every oh, night. Oh yeah, you know? absolutely. And we still, yeah. uh, the six of us guys are, we have a text chain that still goes on. I mean, it's, you know, you can't repeat any, no one can repeat what's said on that text chain because it's just, you know, outrageous and dirty and all that stuff, but it's fun. And it's a, it's a, it's a brotherhood that is, is kind of 
uh, timeless. Yeah. I'm, I'm sure. Is, isn't it done where at the very end there's a blackout as everyone gets like totally naked? It, well, um, partially we, we get completely naked, but um, it's not a blackout. There's um, we're backlit, backlit backlit by a giant sign that says the Flamanti and super burning hot light. So the house is dark. We're backlit and you just see our naked silhouettes, except for the time that the, the lights didn't work. And, the full house lights came up because they jumped to the cur curtain call lights. <laughs> oh my God, that's hysterical. Yeah. They got their money's worth. <laughs> or if you watch the, there's a, the video, a video on YouTube of us performing at Radio City for the Tony Awards. And in order to get the audience's reaction, they have to pop up the lights. So you see, um, oh God, what's the mother daughter? Um, okay, who's the who's the actress? Gwyneth Paltrow and her mom, Blythe Danner. Blythe you'll Danner. you'll see them at the end, like, oh my god, that's so! Oh my god, I can see them. You know, they can like go from complete <laughs> joy and jubilation to complete horror, like, oh my god, because <laughs> they can see everything. <laughs> oh wow, the um, the the uh, I guess I there were there are a lot of things in between. Highest yellow yeah. is one of yeah, them. which was a high um, high point in my career to have such a wonderful meaty role. Again, I thought, oh yeah, I'd love to play Van Gogh, and then I got Doctor Ray, and I was like, oh, okay, and well, that was the part. <laughs> I didn't know that, you know, going into it. You think it's going to be Vincent's show, and he's considerably present, especially in the bathtub scene. But, um, <laughs> and, and I actually, you know, um, I, I won a Helen Hayes award for that. I was very, very proud for that. Yes, you did. Yes. Um, the, the, it, this is a side note and this is probably a story that shouldn't be told and I'll just leave the actors names out of it. But, <laughs> um, there's another show that we did a few about the same time around the same time you were doing curtains where there was another nude scene between two actors, but one is taking care of the other. And let's just say that no one in the audience could see that the nude actors genitals. Um, so the last day that actor put the other actors headshot taped to his <laughs> penis during that. And that was and of course the scene had to go on like normal um but anyway just, sure. I, I wish i wish uh kudish would have thought of that one that would have well, been the only problem is he had to, he had to then take off his because he just exposed himself to me with his robe open the audience didn't know that they were going to get an eye eyeful of beefcake heading into that ice bath right um the only thing that would have been perfect is if if he could have done that, he, and whoever his headshot was, they would cut a hole for the tongue to stick through on that. <laughs> <laughs> wow. <laughs> Taking it a step further. Um, so your next big, big deal was, of course, uh, curtains, candor and ebb. Now, uh, at this point, Fred is, has passed away. Yeah, Fred passed in, in 94. Is that right? Yeah, 94. And so I Miss the Music becomes very, very personal to John Kander. Um, tell, tell me about uh, that experience. David Hyde Pierce uh, st starred in that. Um, what was working on that show like? Um, well, actually, to just backtrack about I Miss the Music, um, uh, it, John wrote the whole song. And it wasn't, uh, Fred didn't write that. Uh, Scott Ellis was wanting a song right. for my character, the composer. And um, uh, so David Loud, our music director, played the tune before we went to L.A. to try the show out at the Amundsen. And we were both in tears because it felt like a, a real uh, love letter to his uh, collaboration coming to an end. Uh, with with Freddie and and I said that to John and and John is like surprised he's like no I didn't write the song about uh, Fred I wrote it about your characters <laughs> I thought, well of course you were writing it for the characters he said but actually I was writing it 
with you and Marin in mind, what would it be like if you and Marin were no longer together? Because our my character, the composer, is singing about missing his lyricist collaborator, who happens to be his ex-wife, played by Karen Ziemba. And so, I mean, talk about a song having meaning on top of meaning on top of meaning. It's about Fred and John. It's about Georgia and Aaron, and it's about me and Marin. And uh, I mean, that alone made it worthwhile doing, but another love fest, that show is just populated with, uh, you know, you, you mentioned David Hyde Pierce, Deborah Monk, Edward Hibbert, Michael McCormick, Michael X. Martin, uh, Karen Ziemba, uh, um, Noel Racy. Um, it just goes on and on. The people who are stalwart, regular, musical theater actors on Broadway and he, Scott Ellis and, and Rupert Holmes and, and Kander brought all these actors together to celebrate music theater. And so we got to celebrate music theater in a murder mystery written by, you know, Rupert Holmes who wrote Mystery of Edmund Drood. It was just kind of ideal. And we tried it out in LA and it went over get like gangbusters. Rupert and John, worked on it and we were on in broad on broadway i don't know maybe half a year later and uh it's very successful again uh, in, during full monty we were kind of overshadowed by the producer not kind of overshadowed we we're completely mowed over by the producers uh the musical um it was just sort of destined they were it was going to happen that they were going to win all the awards and uh it's a wonderful show and a lot of talented people involved it just wasn't great for the full Monty. And the same thing happened similarly for Curtains. Um, that was Grey Garden's year. Very, you know, apples and oranges. But when it comes down to selling tickets, it didn't really matter that, you know, we didn't win all the Tonys. We, David Hyde Pierce, deservedly won his his um, his Tony Award. So it was just a, a big love fest. It was kind of like what the full Monty was. You just couldn't wait to get to work every day and, and sing your incredible song and tell dirty jokes backstage with Deb Monk. <laughs> right. And, and Marin had done the first, uh, the world goes round, correct? Yeah, that, she did. Uh, she replaced Karen Mason off Broadway and then went on the tour, uh, the national tour with it, with Casey, with Karen Ziemba and, and uh, that company. So that's where her relationship with Susan Stroman and Scott, Tommy Thompson and, and Candor and Ebb started. And so there is a very, it's not an exclusive, uh, uh, exclusive family. Um, if, if you're talented and you have worked with um, Candor and, and Ellis and those people, they're very welcoming, but there is a family element to that. And, you know, Deb and KZ have worked with, uh, you know, in the John and Fred, family over and over and Marin sort of belonged to that. And then, so when I got to put my, dip my toe into that water, I was like, Oh, this is it. You know, this is, this is Broadway show business. Right. We had uh, the, the next year, 2008, we had a candor and ebb celebration at signature. And uh, there were three shows done. Uh, it was the kiss of the spider woman. Um, the happy time, which is rarely yeah. ever done, and uh, topped it all off with the visit with Gina yeah. Rivera, um, and this was the very pre 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 Broadway. Mm -hmm. Many years later, um, which you got to go into the Broadway visit, correct? Right, I did the first reading years before. I, I was asked to come down to the signature to do that, but I was doing curtains at the time. It seemed kind of right smart to stick with the production contract <laughs> salary but um back in yeah. 98 or 9 i did the first reading of the visit with angela lansbury and and phil bosco wow. um yeah and did a demo and everything and and then yeah there was the the goodman slash signature was that was did the goodman the goodman was at 2001 right so the signature was 2008 yeah um yeah and then and then i did it at williamstown and, and broadway eventually so and i got to grow oh my into gosh. my part i was I played the son of 
of the male. I play the son of Phil Bosco, uh, and then I ultimately played that character's uh, never later played by Roger Reese's best friend, the schoolmaster. <laughs> so there's there was one benefit for it taking a very long time to get to Broadway for me. <laughs> Such a, a great score. Uh, I, I I just I loved the show and seeing getting to see Cheetah mm. do that role. Um, and God, the song "Love and Love Alone," mm-hmm. yeah, just one of one of the best Kandranab songs I think. Just just on par with the top, you know, twenty. Uh, and there's so many, but yeah. you hear that song and it's so unmistakably Kandranab. Mm. Um, but yeah, that that's. Uh, I guess I guess the latest thing that you were up to right before the shutdown with on Broadway was Pretty Woman. And I, I think we had a friend or two in that, didn't we, Matthew? Pretty Woman. Was that Jake Obmark? Yeah. Was he in that? Yeah. So you guys um, were, were you in previews? Oh, for uh, before the, when the pandemic hit? No, yeah. uh, we opened in uh, August of 2018. And then I left in uh, June of 2019. And um, I was, when the pandemic hit, I was in Florida working on new Aaron's and Flaherty musical that I was starring in that Frank Galati had um, uh, written and was also directing at the Oslo Rep. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, okay, so I got a little confused. I We were talking to Brad, Oscar, and Diego Prieto the other night. He was in previews when, uh, for um, Mrs. Do- Mrs. Oh. Doubtfire, when everything shut yeah. down he sends his oh life, good by the way. he's um, a great guy so jason when you are a broadway actor and you're you've got a, a run of a show going and you really don't know you know you're hoping but you don't really know you know how long it's going to run and all that uh it, i guess it's kind of like a little bit of a gamble of trying to figure out like do you jump into another workshop of a show that might take you out of a show that may not be a big deal or it may be the next big deal. How does all of that work? Is that, is that a part of you working with your manager and agent of saying, okay, we've got something coming up in a couple of months. Um, Cause clearly you kind of, you know, go from gig to gig to gig or try mm-hmm. to, but, but um, I remember uh, Bobby Spencer, J Robert Spencer. Do you know J yeah, Robert Spencer? I do. So Jay Robert went to our uh, our university, Shenandoah, and we did Superstar with him mm-hmm. years ago. But I remember one, when we were doing Superstar, he came home with uh, his uh, girlfriend, I think was Jenny Lynn at the time, which is now his wife. But I remember him saying, Matt, I've got to leave New York. And I was like, why? And he said, oh, everyone there thinks I'm a swing because I'm swinging all these shows. And he wanted to leave California and kind of like restart and re-enter as like, I'm not a swing. I want to be in the show. I want to be something seen something different but how does that work when you're trying to um navigate so many offers yet while you know still doing a a show that's running? well if you're in a show it's always great because it gives you security you don't have to be there during the day except for wednesdays and saturdays and sundays you know whatever your matinee is um so you can do readings um and and if they're developing a show if you do a reading it's always it's always very good to get in when they do the first reading because then if they like you then you'll come back for the second reading and then maybe the workshop and 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 you just balance those. Sometimes you could do one reading after the next after the next and at different times in your career you just you you just do everything. You don't say no to anything, especially development. Um, but you don't leave your money job if you're on Broadway unless it's a definitely something that's going to be a step up Um, because you're going to go out of town. You're going to take a big pay cut. And if you give up your gig on Broadway, there's no guarantee that you can come back to it. And if this other thing tanks you, so you have to have, um, you know, how to, you have to know how to read, not just the script and the score, but who the producer is, who the director is, who the, the star, if you're not starring in it, who your co-stars are. Um, Do they have anything solid you know, it's a real business uh, venture. Y- you do your due diligence and you don't take any steps away from something that's secure, especially in this business, because it could just 
even a successful show could close at any moment, um, you know, unforeseen circumstances. Um, and I have a real good sense of that. And also Marin was extraordinarily good at that. And we made, we said no a lot just because it would take us out of town. And we would say no to things that, you know, came in and were successful and you go, oh, well, I missed that one. Uh, but it, your, your trajectory is already laid out. I don't believe in a, like a grand plan necessarily, but there's a path that um, you say no to something and um, it was meant to not happen. If you say yes, and it stink, it's a stinker, it was meant to be a stinker because you made really good friends. And that's usually when you made the best friends are in the stinkers. So um, you just kind of yeah. have to have a, a sense that you are born with, but then you also have to train yourself to be aware and you're constantly watching other shows and, and watching those directors and choreographers and stars and going, they're successful, but I don't necessarily feel like I'm a part of that. I don't think I would uh, gel with that uh, artistic sensibility. So, you know, I don't necessarily have to go to that party. Someone else can, you know, go to that party. So, yeah. Great. Um, so, Jason, we've it's been mentioned several times, but I do want to bring up, of course, your wonderful wife, Marin, passed in 2018. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I think I got the chance to meet her once or twice at the highest yeah. yellow. Um, but uh, so lovely, so talented. She was, you know, three-time Tony nominee for, uh, you know, Passion, Ragtime, and... Uh, the Cole Porter kiss me um, Kate. Mm -hmm. Thank you. K kiss me Kate. Um, and just another, okay. While in that same uh, fraternity house where I first heard you sing uh, the Broadway leading ladies VHS tape was circulating amongst the college <laughs> students. And of course, seeing her on that and that became like mainstay viewing for right. everybody. Of course, you know, ragtime being the landmark, um, production that it was uh it's i you you had basically a year of mourning and then pandemic happened yeah. and i just uh i i've thought of you so many times i really wanted to reach out when we started doing this i just wanted to reach out and talk to you and see how you were doing and what what an incredible journey uh that all has been and was and 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 I want to ask about sunflowers' mm, significance. Mm -hmm. Could you speak? It's to funny that? you say that. I'm looking at a sunflower throw and a couple sunflower paintings here at our. I'm up at our second home in Columbia County, New York, uh, uh, right on the Massachusetts border, and uh, basically the place that we wanted to just retire to and you know live out the rest of our lives. Uh, but the sunflower um, was always Marin's favorite flower, and when she was diagnosed with ovarian cancer in 2015, um, it was, it somehow eluded us, but now it seems to be common knowledge by a lot of people that uh, the sunflower always turns its face toward the sun wherever it is in the sky. Um, so in the morning as day breaks, it is facing the east and it follows the sun as it crosses the, the sky. And then it, it, set you know it's facing the west when it sets and then at night it turns its head back around it's always facing the sun and so the sort of metaphor uh of keeping your face toward the light the positiveness that it takes to handle anything day-to-day -day issues but particularly when you're dealing with a, a cancer that is underfunded uh has no early detection when it's diagnosed it's usually late stage and um, even though it's treatable and you can extend, you can live for like Marin did three, three and a half years, um, it's almost always terminal. Um, so as Marin was already, not at all, she wasn't a Pollyanna, but she knew somehow instinctively in her throughout her life that, you know, if you, you kept a positive attitude, that positive things will come to you. And that's what she did. She held on to the sunflower as a, sort of a totem. I renamed our, our, we were incorporated and I renamed our corporation after she passed to Sunflower Power 
incorporated um, because I just, even though it's difficult, it, it, you know, when you're dealing with cancer or a pandemic and being jobless for over a year and you don't know when or if you'll return to what you used to do and if you'll make the same kind of money, will the economics of theater be viable for you to continue the lifestyle that you 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 like and are possibly accustomed to? You have to keep a, a positive outlook, not blindly positive, not everything's going to be fine, just, okay, this is the reality. And if I keep my heart open and my face to the light, then hopefully something good and positive will happen. So that's kind of the long and the short of that. And of course, the sunflowers, famous painting by Van yeah. Gogh, right? <laughs> that's right. I have to get a print of that. That's right. Yeah. I have a beautiful um, photograph of one of our last dates. Uh, we went to the Metropolitan Museum uh, in New York, and um, I think it was in 2017, maybe 2000. Yeah. Anyway, um, and her standing in front of one of the many um, sunflower paintings that Vincent did. Yeah. Wow. And you you uh, re released, was it last year, your last uh, concert with her? Yeah, we did a, a concert called Broadway and Beyond, which had a bunch of songs that, that you've already mentioned uh, that I've introduced on Broadway and that also Marin introduced on Broadway or uh, sang on PBS in concert. And um, just sort of, we always avoided the best of or songs we're known for concerts. And we didn't say, oh, Marin, you have cancer. We should do this. It just naturally happened. And um, so we did that at 54 Below. And uh, after Marin passed, I got, they had really great recordings and Broadway Records released it on CD. And our good friend, Joe Lacaro, who was an original company member of Ragtime, we got him there the last night that we were playing and he had two high def cameras and we uh, edited it together and released it on DVD, which uh, isn't for sale, but for donations to a couple of the charitable uh, cancer organ cancer char charities that we um, work with um, for donation. The DVD can be had through uh, Broadway records. Where so people just need to go to broadwayrecords.com to find Right, broadwayrecords.org. And um, yeah, Org. and okay. I think there's a link there. You just look up Marin and Jason and this should be, I think you can make the donation through them and, and they'll get you the DVD. And, and the organizations are uh, Cancer Support Community, which is a worldwide non-for-profit that gives over $40 million in um, assistance to people who are living with cancer and also their families, the caregivers. Uh, helps helps people get to treatments. Um, and during the pandemic, it's been invaluable um, to help people, you know, just get somewhere uh, to have treatments. And then Tina's Wish, which is an ovarian cancer organization that is um, uh, dedicated to finding an early detection test for ovarian cancer, which there is none. And um, if anyone's interested in more information about that, they should go to tinaswish.org. Uh, or uh, Ovarian Cancer Research Alliance, OCRA, um, you know, for women to say, what are the symptoms of ovarian cancer? How can I keep an eye out for that? Because it's very tricky and it can be mistaken for just any number of uh, issues that women have regularly. And then also the third organization is the, um, the Actors Fund, um, which helps, you know, in numerous ways, as I'm sure you've discussed in one of your podcasts before. <laughs> yes. Um, I, we always finish out by asking a couple of uh, more pedantic, mundane questions, followed by a wish. Mm. Um, so we'll start with the pedantic. <laughs> uh, what are you, are you binge watching anything? What has gotten you through the past year? Um, because it's been uh, difficult outside of the pandemic, you know, just dealing with grief and, and isolation. Um, it's been difficult to find anything, but recently, <laughs> um, and it kind of ties into being alone and, and gardening and sort of the Henry David Thoreau-ness of being alone in the country. Um, it's a Victorian farming 
it, it's a, mm-hmm. a series on Amazon and it's three, it's like two archeologists and um, they're historians. And they basically work, live, dress in the Victorian era style and farm for a year. And so this doc, this uh, series follows them. And then there's a companion series that's Edwardian farm and Tudor England farm. It sounds really kind of silly, but. <laughs> no, it sounds fascinating yeah. actually. Um, are you reading anything good or have you read anything good? Well, I'm reading Dickens right now. I'm, you know, it, providing the world continues to spin in the direction of positivity. I'll be directing the mystery of Edwin Drood at the university that where my sister teaches acting um, this fall. So I'm, you know, reading Dickens. <laughs> gotcha. Good. Your sister teaches. Yeah. Act- she's a professor of acting uh, at Northern Kentucky university. I was actually supposed to direct Floyd Collins there this last fall, but that of course, um, was canceled and I thought maybe not the best show to come back with after a pandemic as a, a guy being Dude. isolated and then ended up dying. So we're going to do Drude instead. <laughs> so when, so when the sister comes to the shows, is there that backstage moment of like, Oh, my sister's here tonight and she's going to tell me I didn't do this. No, night. she's, she couldn't be more supportive and, and loving. She was Marin's one of Marin's best friends and, and vice versa. So um, yeah, we're in the same you know, supportive, uh, if, and she's a great sounding board too. I'm like, Hey, that bit that I did, did it work? You know, she's like, yeah, maybe right. you want to try a little more energy or, you know, back off. <laughs> right. Oh, that's yeah. great. Um, and lastly, if you had one wish, uh, through this pandemic times, it uh, doesn't matter what it is. Uh, we have this wish box that we've been writing down, our guests wish and putting them in. It's a, a box that looks like a rudimentally like constructed, like when you used to get your Valentine's <laughs> and make decorate shoe box. Um, and so if, if you had one wish, doesn't matter what it is, what is your one wish? That um, I'm going to make it a little more specific to the theater world only because the big wishes, I, you know, there's so many of them. But as far as the theater world goes, that we, I, I wish that, and I think it's attainable, that we can learn to embrace the inclusivity that we so desperately need the, um, uh, the people of color in our industry who um, don't have a solid voice uh, and are not solidly represented, represented, that when we come back, however we come back initially, that we are full steam ahead in making this a more well-rounded, um, uh, inclusive business, which it already feels like we are, but we have learned that we're not, uh, that our, our Black and Asian and uh, Pacific Asian friends uh, in the business that we consider in the tribe and the community don't feel as a part of the community as we had hoped or sort of blindly thought they were. So let's make that a real reality and a real community and a real, a real tribe. Yeah. Amen. Yes. All right. Well, Jason, we've taken way more of your time than we thought, but God, you fascinating uh, to, to talk to as always. And I, I just thank you so much for coming on here. Uh, I will, I'm going to call you sometime when it's not being recorded so we can have, have a more informal conversation. Thank you for yes. having me and, and, and thank you for doing this podcast. It's, it's great. It's great to catch up with you. Yeah. Happy, happy, happy Easter. Thank weekend. you. You yes. too. Have a big old chocolate rabbit and, and think of me. <laughs> I will. <laughs> Oh boy, um, so great hearing Jason's voice again, uh, and uh, we will definitely be posting links to those charities that he mentioned at the end, so if you didn't have your pencil ready, we'll make sure we share them with the episode, um, and yeah, I, I'm really glad that we planted sunflowers at the beginning. Um, such a beautiful uh, spirit uh, Jason is and Marin 
as well. Um, and fascinating to hear about uh, the, the beginnings of all of those now like iconic, famous shows that he and Marin were a part of, um, are a part of forever. Um, so thank you, Jason, for, for joining us. That was really special and I really appreciate it. Um, so we uh, are gonna wa water those sunflowers and watch them grow and watch them follow the sun. Um, and I did not know that until he told me that. Yeah, that was fascinating. Uh, yeah. We, it is the night before uh, Easter. A few episodes ago, we painted rocks uh, with different positive messages on them. Black Lives Matter, Stop AAPI Hate, Be Proud, Embrace the Arts, Wear a Mask. You know, subtle things that aren't candy-filled eggs, but things that maybe children will find these rocks and if they don't already know what they mean, which 9 out of 10 let's be honest, the kids know everything, um, maybe they'll ask what they mean and learn um, a positive message so as we go into uh, Easter tomorrow uh, for those who celebrate, I hope you have a great day, a safe day and tomorrow joining us we have uh, J. Chris Urquiaga um a wonderful musician, talented friend of ours, uh, who we can't wait to catch up with. And until then, as we always say, turn, turn your, your heart, heart into, into art. art. Good night, everyone. Bye.